Welcome to the Wellness Pie Shop, where each episode we cut into a different slice of wellness to examine how our values and resilience nourish our daily lives. With the help of special guests and our own brand of irreverent insight, we'll dive into some of the ingredients that make up the whole of each of our wellness pies. We're your hosts, Dina Searden and Samaya Ding Lawson. Thanks for joining us. Now let's grab a cup of tea, sit back, relax, and join this week's discussion at the Wellness Pie Shop. Welcome to the Wellness Pie Shop. Here we are back again with Samaya. Hello. Hello. And today's guest is Sharon Lucas. And Sharon is a licensed clinical social worker with 35 years experience in the medical field. She received her BA in psychology with distinction from Stanford University and her master's degree in social work from the University of Southern California. She also holds a master's degree in health research from Lancaster University. She founded and directed a HIMSA care center and an inpatient hospice and subacute nursing facility for people with AIDS and cancer in 1988. She has worked extensively with patients and families facing chronic, life-threatening, and terminal illnesses as a consultant and practitioner in hospitals, nursing homes, home hospice, and in private practice. She's currently an independent practitioner with a small group practice providing therapy to seniors with health, mental health, and cognitive disabilities who reside in assisted living facilities and at home. Sharon, let me ask you. Yes. uh, So this is the wellness pie shop. And, you know, our main focus is kind of values and how people use those in their lives. So I'm going to ask you first question, what are your values? Well, I have quite a lot of them, but I would say my overriding leading values are love, compassion, and kindness. And I think those direct me in my daily life. And I think they direct how I behave, how I interact with other people and how I choose what my interests are, how I decide how to spend my life, and um, what I do. So love, how does that manifest in your, in your life? I see that as a guiding principle. I think it's really important that um, as social workers that we, that we not only have love for other people, but that we love ourselves. I think very often in this work, it's easy to get lost in how much we care about other people and we take care of other people, but that we forget that we need to take care of ourselves. So self-love and self-care is a very important part of my you know, daily practice because in this work, it's very easy to get burned out. Um, especially when we're putting out a lot of caring and giving and compassion to people who are often disenfranchised or hurting in a variety of ways or in need of healing and caring. And so I think, you know, giving love is just one of the ways that I give to people. And uh, I think it's really important that I give love back to myself. I think we live in very difficult times you know, particularly right now with COVID, you know, it's hit this world at a time when I don't think any of us saw it coming. And I don't think anybody really knew how to deal with it, or does know how to deal with it. I think we're learning some strategies. But I think one thing that we have, that for me, has helped me be able to cope with it in a more compassionate way has really been to throw love at it, really been to you know, be more loving and compassionate of other people. 
you know, be more patient, be more loving, be more present and more understanding. And, and I think, again, that's where love comes into it for me. It's just, you know, to try and be, to be more loving, you know, in the face of things we don't understand. You mentioned self-love. What does that look like for you? I think, again, it's, you know, really being more patient with myself, giving myself time to take care of myself, giving myself a break when I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. I feel like I've made a mistake. Maybe I didn't handle a situation as well as I could have handled a situation. Saying to myself, you know, it's okay. You've got this. You know, you can take care of this. If you didn't get it right today, you'll get it right tomorrow. Part of what we do as social workers is to learn um, and to be on on a curve. I think an upward curve of continuing to learn and grow. And I think that's what self-love is is all about, is uh, being accepting of yourself, being accepting of your your growth curve, your own growth curve, uh, being able to recognize your growth curve, being able to say, you know, this is where I was, you know, five minutes ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, this is where I am today. And, you know, good for me. Look at what I've been able to do. So one of the things that I heard you say, Sharon, was that you allow yourself to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was kind of chuckling at that because it, to me, I got the impression that maybe, just maybe, you're a perfectionist. <laughs> and <laughs> God, bam. So how, you know, how big of mistakes do you allow yourself? Mm-hmm. So you're right. Uh, I was uh, I was uh, brought up to be a perfectionist. Um, I am a perfectionist, and I do allow myself to make mistakes. Um, I don't like to make mistakes, but I am human, and I make mistakes all the time. Because you know, Samaya and I are nothing but <laughs> <laughs> constantly too big mistakes making mistakes yeah, all the time, all the uh, time, but I do allow myself to do things right occasionally. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's part of my self-care. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Sharon didn't <laughs> interrupt your, your thought there. That was just something that I picked up on. Yeah, no, it's true. Uh, you know, I don't like to make mistakes. I, you know, I like to be perfect, but you know, we live in an imperfect world. And when you're mm-hmm. dealing with other human beings, especially when you're dealing with seniors, um, mm-hmm. It's real easy to make mistakes, Absolutely. Um, you know, because they're older and wiser than I am. Mm-hmm. They, they've been around the block more than I have. And um, so it's real easy to, uh, you know, accidentally offend them, accidentally surprise them, particularly if you're dealing with someone with cognitive impairments, mm-hmm. you know, to, to say something they don't understand or that they misinterpret or that they uh, that makes them paranoid or suspicious. So, you know, I'm constantly learning, you know, new things and self-correcting in the moment. So, uh, yeah, I, I've become much more humble in my current position than maybe than ever before. I, I sense though, that's probably one of your greatest strengths is your ability to be humble. Um, and I think you allow yourself the flexibility to make mistakes, which then you model for your clients that it's okay. We don't have to be perfect. It's okay to make mistakes. Yes. And you're, you're talking about, you know, working with humans and working with mm-hmm. people and, and, you know, we as humans walking in this world, having to relate to other human beings 
mm-hmm. and uh, giving ourselves a break when we don't always get it right. I think that's, you make a very good point that it definitely you need to make space for that. Yes. I, you know, I'm reminded right now, of one client in particular I have who is, uh, you know, uh, been bipolar his whole life. And, you know, he's constantly berating himself on all the things, all the negative aspects of, him, of himself. So, you know, uh, with him, it's real important to remind him, you know, of his good qualities. And, you know, whenever I can use myself as an example of, uh, you know, where I've made a mistake or where I've fallen short in, in my own life, it's so helpful for him, you know, to see that he's not the only one. Me, who he sees as perfect, makes mistakes. So I, th- I think it's really helpful for people to see that, you know, we make mistakes. We're not perfect. Well, I think that's the human component. That's so important that not all clinicians have. Right. And I think us showing our vulnerabilities can be an asset when we're working with clients. Yes. Yes. You know, one of the things I've learned with the cognitively impaired is that being vulnerable is extremely important because they're living in a world that we don't understand. When, when you're cognitively impaired, the way you perceive the world is very different than the way I perceive the world. And so in order for me to understand how you perceive the world, I have to let go and become vulnerable and allow myself to enter your world. And when I become vulnerable and allow myself to enter your world, then I get to understand your world better and interact with you in your world for that time that I'm with you. And then we have a meaningful conversation and you feel connected to me. And that's, you know, another value that is so important in this work is connection. And Mm -hmm. people who are cognitively impaired feel so disconnected from life. And when they can connect with us or another human being, they feel seen and they feel heard. And that is just so important. So being vulnerable is just really, really important. There's, there's two things that I'm thinking while you brought this up. And the first is, how is it that you demonstrate your vulnerability? I, I think the first way that I demonstrate my vulnerability is that I truly, I try to be really authentic. I don't try to be somebody that I'm not. I try to be, you know, as real as I can, you know, without losing my boundaries, but, you know, really letting people connect with me in as authentic a way as possible. So I think that, you know, people who are hurting, people who are cognitively impaired, um, especially during this pandemic, you know, the seniors that I work with have been, you know, literally locked up in their room isolated from their families, unable to speak to anybody, they have really needed connection. So it's so important that I come in as a person who they can connect with. So I I need to be real. I need to recognize how they're feeling. I need to reflect back to them how lonely they must feel. Mm -hmm. I, I need to reflect back to them that I'm feeling that way too, because you know, I don't go anywhere either. I'm at home alone. I have my groceries delivered. I understand what it must feel like to be locked up, not as locked up as you are, but, you know, I need to be real in that way, vulnerable in that way so that they can connect with me in that way. 
Are there moments, I know being a social worker for like 20 years, there's been moments where they teach you in social work school not to show really emotion or cry. Have there been moments where you've just really connected with a client and have cried with them and or showed some kind of emotion? I don't know that I've actually cried with them, but I've certainly showed emotion. I remember uh, there was one client in particular um, who was 95 years old and um, it was her 95th birthday. And I, uh, I, uh, they weren't allowing us to bring anything into the, she lived in an assisted living facility. They weren't allowing us to bring anything in. And I, I snuck a cupcake in, in my uh, pocket <laughs> uh, with, it had a little Snickers bar mm -hmm. on the top. She just had a stroke and gotten out of the skilled nursing facility. And I went back in and I, I brought her the cupcake and a birthday card for her 95th birthday. Oh. And she was so thrilled. And she said, put that card up. I want everybody to know it's my birthday. And, oh. uh, you know, and I, I, I did get very emotional about that because um, she was so thrilled. And uh, she was one of my favorite, favorite clients. And uh, her biggest fear, the reason I went in to see her initially was that you know, the reason, uh, and this was before the pandemic, when I started seeing her was her biggest fear was that living in an assisted living facility, uh, that she would never see her family again. And then the pandemic came and that turned out to be her, her reality. Mm, uh, terrible. And, and, and then she had a stroke and she ended up on hospice dying. And then her family all got to come in and see her. So, mm -hmm. you know, her worst fear turned out not to be true. They all got to be there when she died, which was really very sweet. But yeah, I do get emotional. You know, Sharon, one of the things that I know about you is that you do connect with people. And what's interesting is how you've throughout your life have connected with those people who are dying, right? Yes. With death and that connection at end of life is something very different than connecting with someone on a day-to-day -day basis, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. I wonder, obviously, you know, these, these values as a professional are, are really important. And how do they, how do they show up in your personal life? I, I don't know that they're much different in my personal life. I, I have the same values. I think, you know, love connection, compassion, justice, vision, those kinds of things are, you know, are, are part of who I am. Do those, yeah. yeah, do they, do you feel like that makes your connections with your, or your interactions, I guess I'm trying to say with your family and friends, does it impact those aspects uh, of your life? Yeah, I think they did maybe more so when I was younger and coming up, you know, I think I was much more involved, you know, in groups and with people when I was younger, you know, being a child of the sixties, you know, I was pretty, uh, pretty much an activist and an idealist. And um, I certainly had my share of clashes with a family who was pretty conservative. So what changed? What changed? To, you said when you were younger, you were think, more involved. Yeah, I think as I got older, I got more uh, involved in my profession. And mm -hmm. I became, I became, at least over the last 20 years, I think, I've become more I've become more isolated, I would say. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm not as involved in, you know, in groups. And um, I have 
fewer friends than I did when I was younger. So I have a few close friends. I'm a little more picky about who I choose to spend my time with and how I spend my time. You know, a lot of my family, uh, as I've gotten older, they're gone. You know, my, I'm the matriarch of my family now, mm-hmm. uh, which makes me feel really old. Um, <laughs> you know, I just got back from Sweden uh, visiting my oldest niece and her husband and her new baby and her three-year-old. And, you know, that was a wonderful, you know, experience to feel like the great aunt of, uh, you know, two little children who live in a different culture. And, um, you know, connecting with them really gave me a sense of family that was so different. You know, you know it was so different than to watch her raising her children so differently than the way that I was raised or than she was raised. Um, it was just so wonderful, such a wonderful feeling. So I don't know if that answered your question or not, but I kind of strayed away there. That's okay. We love digression. We do. (laughs) Definitely. Um, I'm kind of curious to know, like, where do your values come from? You know, I really think a lot of my values came from, from growing up in a small town in the sixties and being part of a, a, a group called the YMCA. And I was very fortunate to be able to interact with a group of people that were very progressive, very liberal, very much a part of the movement that was going on in the 60s. You know, it was kind of love, peace and rock and roll. And, um, you know, that was, was, there was a group, the 60s group movement, and I was part of that. A lot of retreats, a lot of, um, you know, taking vows, you know, taking value-based vows Mm-hmm. Um, uh, commitments that we made, you know, on an annual basis at camp that we were going to, you know, work towards for a year, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. So I kind of grew up with that kind of a, uh, that kind of a, a belief system. So it sounds yeah. like you were exposed to values at a young age, very, right. very young age, yeah. very young age. I also had a very, very close relationship with my grandmother and she had very strong values and i very much idolized her and i think she was a role model for me mm. uh, what were her values like thinking back what what did you what did she model for you well i think she you know she very much she was very loving you know family was important to her work was important to her certainly connection was important to her compassion and kindness was important to her. Those were all things that I got from her, you know, being a hard worker, standing up for what you believe in, justice was important to her. Those were all things that she, that she role modeled for me and that I, you know, was able to follow. Pretty cool. She sounds like a really cool lady. Oh, she was amazing. Mm. Did she raise you growing up or did you just visit with her often? Uh, she, when I was little, she came over to our house every Friday night and spent the weekend and she left on Sundays and, uh, I would cry and she would stand me up in her 57 Chevy and drive me around the block three times. And then tell me that I, I had to stop crying and she would put me to bed and she'd tell me I could, she would call during the week and she'd be back on Friday. And sure enough, she Mm. came back. That's so sweet. Yeah. That's so sweet. I want to kind of 
look back, because one of the things that I have always admired you most about is the AIDS hospice that you started back in 1988. Mm. That was a really challenging time for the for folks with the disease and getting the care that they needed and deserved. And I'm just wondering how did, you know, how uh, clearly compassion and connection. Well, I don't know so much. I can see the compassion component of it, but your values of, of love and connection, how did that play out when, with that, with that hospice and, and how that ever even came about? Does that make so, sense? Yes. Yes. So I, I, and I'll tell you the other value that's very strong in that one. And that was justice. Mm-hmm. Um, how the, sure. and, and vision. Yeah. I was sitting at a meeting of the uh, California Association of Health Facilities, and one of the men in the meeting proposed that it should be illegal, immoral, and unethical for skilled nursing facilities to accept AIDS patients. Mm. And he proposed that as a motion. And I stood up and said, if this motion passes, I will, I was a skilled nursing administrator at the time. Um, I said, I will pull my facility out of mm. the organization and I will go to the newspapers mm. and, and it didn't pass, but I was working in a, in a skilled nursing facility that was actually a uh, rehab facility for slow to recover head trauma patients. So they had a unique business model. And I thought, you know what? I could take this business model and I could create a, a hospice for people with AIDS in a skilled nursing facility and it would work. And mm. I had friends that were rotting away in hospitals, you know, where their trays were being left outside. Nobody was touching them. They weren't getting bathed. Um, it was just an awful, awful time in the 80s. You know, the people, myself and friends of theirs that would go in to visit them, you know, were basically providing the care because they weren't being cared for by the, the nurses or people taking care of them. And they looked terrible. And so I was lucky enough to be able to write up a business plan and get it funded. And we happened to find the facility and were able to purchase it. And over the course of a few years, we were able to get 40 different insurance contracts. Wow. Um, suddenly we we had 20 beds full of people with uh, AIDS. You know, our turnover was very fast because, you know, most of the people were coming and dying pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, But we created a model that was a really family-based, love, compassion-based model. So everybody that came, the first thing they did was they got into a very large tub and they got bathed Mm -hmm. and they got shaved and they got their hair washed. And they got their wounds cleaned and they, they, the first thing the families or their friends said to to me was, oh Mm -hmm. my God, they look like, you know, the Bobby we used to know Mm -hmm. and they look like themselves, you know, this is the first time somebody's touched them, you Mm -hmm. know, in a month. And they were just so grateful to be able, even if it was for 24 hours to see them, you know, see people touching them and taking care of them and turning them over and, you know, trying to feed them if they could eat or, Mm -hmm. you know, giving them massage or giving them Reiki or sitting with them. And I mean, I had staff members who would literally get so attached to some of these patients, they would clock out and then they would sit at the bed all night. Mm -hmm. 
you know, just to be with them because they got, they got attached or they felt connected to these people in some way. And that was the kind of environment we tried to create was that, you know, these people are your family. These people have been treated unjustly. These people are people that we're going to create an environment for in which they, when they transition, they're going to feel the love and care that we are providing for them. They're going to feel that they've been cared for and loved. And, and you treated them with hum, you know, dignity, right? And yes. respect and love and kindness, you know, which are the basic fundamentals that we should provide for every human being. Yes. I yes. think sadly that in my work in hospice for the seven and a half years, I did that. There are, I wish that model of compassion toward your fellow human being and providing them dignity was something that all nursing homes abided by. Unfortunately, I, I didn't see it. And that's a very sad thing. And I'm not sure that, I don't, you know, in your experience now, Sharon, whether or not that you're seeing it much, but I will also say that during that time, I, I actually volunteered and that's how I met you was volunteering at Ahimsa. And I was getting ready to go to graduate school and needed to have something social worky since I was an, <laughs> an English major. And I, I, what I remember about my experience as a volunteer there, well, there was one gentleman who was just so far gone and he had AIDS related dementia and, but he was having such a good time. Mm. He said to me, you know, this is a, he, he used to be in the tourism industry and he says, you know, this is a really nice ship. And the captain, that captain is top notch. And the crew members, the crew members on this ship are so good. I've never been on a cruise with such good staff. And, you know, I chuckled and thought it was really sweet, but that just speaks volumes, Sharon, as mm -hmm. to, you know, how your values really um, infused your staff and, and came down to help a dying man. And in those days, when you say family, I would say 90% of the family that came to see them was their, not their biological family, but the family that they made because- right so many folks had been just, you know, just excused out of the family and parents didn't want anything to do with them. And it was, you know, all very tragic, but again, this is what you provided them, right? I mean, you brought it all the way down. So this gentleman just had the best delusions, right? Mm -hmm. I'm like, damn, when I'm going, that's how I want to go. I want to go feeling like I'm on a cruise ship and I've got the best captain and the best crew yeah. ever. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard that before, but I think it's such a great m metaphor. And, it, you know, it shows you that, you know, people who are delusional or who are cognitively impaired, you know, they pick up so much from their environment. And when you create an environment, you know, you, you it, it, it affects them uh, and they're, they can tell you what their experience is based on even if they're delusional you know, because it will come out in, in their mental status, it'll come out in their delusion, you know, how they experience the world. And that's why, you know, when I was saying before, it's important to be vulnerable and get into their delusion so you can go there with them. Absolutely. You know, get, get on the ship, find out, about the, find out about the staff, you know, how are the staff, what's the captain like, you know, <laughs> you know, you learn a lot that way. So yeah, that's, that's really great feedback. We talked a little bit about love and a little bit about connection. And obviously compassion is a theme that runs through everything 
And, you know, was there ever a time, it seems like these values are just so universally accepted that it would be okay to have them and to not, you won't, you wouldn't come up with any conflict, but was there a time when your values, especially maybe justice was in conflict with a family or with a community or with, you know, coworkers and that you had to do something different? Well, I can tell you, you know, there's something I'm struggling with now. Um, and it has to do with the whole, you know, vaccination mask wearing mm. issue. You know, I, I, I do my best to be non-judgmental, you know, and try and be open-minded. But, you know, as a, you know, as a healthcare worker and as someone who's very protective of those who live in assisted living facilities and have had to be on lockdown for so long, you know, I really am having a very hard time with healthcare workers in particular, but anybody who's refusing to get vaccinated. It's very hard for me to remain kind and I have and compassionate and loving and even stay friends with people mm-hmm. who, uh, you know, are refusing to get vaccinated, especially those who are seeing it as a political issue and not a health issue. So, yeah, it's it's put my values up for me to look at. It's put them right in my face where, yeah, where I've, I've had to say I'm, I'm not being very kind right now. And I'm, I'm not being very loving and compassionate because I'm I'm not I'm not wanting to hear your point of view. <laughs> mm, that's such a good just, point. Yeah, I just, I just want you to get your vaccine. Right. You know, I, I want to be protected and I want my clients to be protected. Mm-hmm. Well, I think what's the ethical dilemma is um, getting vaccinated is beyond just you. It's for the greater good, right? Exactly. So, and then when we look at it from that perspective, there should be, there's no justification for it, right? Even though you have these strong values about why you shouldn't get it, it's still about the greater good, right? Right, right. And and that's that's what I keep getting back to is it's beyond me. It's 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 for it's for the greater good. And mm-hmm. I and I having a hard time understanding you know, had this whole thing been framed in the beginning as a healthcare issue and not a political issue, I think we would not be in the dilemma that we're in today, but we're in the dilemma. And so certainly we can, um, yes, not, go, no, it's not, let's not go down that road. <laughs> I don't, we could all beat on our soapboxes for a very long time. I think, yes. you know, as we're talking, I just can't help but see a parallel between this and the AIDS crisis in the 80s and early 90s. The parallel between this and the AIDS crisis in the 80s and 90s, because I think that was a time when the moral majority really started making their political stance known. And they came out so strongly against people with AIDS because it was a sexually transmitted disease and the majority of people getting infected were we're, we're gay men. Right. Right. So while the majority, this is a, a little different, you would think that people would, I don't know. It's, it's just crazy to me that this affects everyone, but it's still politicized in a way that AIDS was also politicized and people now it's not that people don't want to be with their loved ones, but they can't be with their loved ones. Right. Right. And it, uh, yeah, it's, um, it was very interesting to sort of watch how this whole thing happened. Um, you know, in, in March, when, when things got really bad, you know, I was the first one in, in our group practice to say, 
you know, it, the assisted living facilities don't know what they're doing. They're not, it's not safe for me to go. And, mm. I, and I, I said to my group practice, you know, in a group text, I said, I'm not going anymore. I'm going to do telehealth. And then two days later, the, 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 the director of our group practice ordered everybody to do telehealth. And then a few days later, it, it was already starting, but we were considered non non-essential healthcare personnel. So we weren't even being let in to the assisted living facilities. So here these poor people are, are you know, you know, first they're let to, left to be wandering around, but the doors are locked so they can't get out and wow. their loved members can't get in. And then, mm. then they're going back and forth and then, then they're being locked in their rooms. And then, you know, because someone, someone, would come down positive in the facility. So then they would lock everybody in their rooms yeah. and they, they couldn't get out to, to see loved ones. Loved ones couldn't get in. This went on for a year and a half, almost, you know, no contact with loved ones locked in their rooms, meals in their rooms on paper yeah. plates, you know, no, no contact with the outside, no therapist to go in to talk to yeah. no activities, no interaction with other residents. I mean, absolutely nothing. These people you know were going start like? raving mad. Yeah, it sounds like jail. It was jail. They were they were imprisoned, mm-hmm. and the facilities didn't know what to do. They weren't taking advice from anybody. They were just trying to. Um, I mean, they were operating on a business model of one, try to keep loved ones from taking. Yeah, you know, <laughs> person stop, out. Yeah, trying mm. to take their person out because there was a mass exodus at first, and mm. and and two, try and keep everybody safe. And the only way they knew how to do that was to lock everybody down. Right, that's crazy. And you know, obviously, optics isn't good if you've got twenty people infected with COVID, and then staff coming in and getting infected, and people dying. And I knew it was bad. Uh-huh. And that just sounds horrible, horrible. Oh, yeah. yeah, it was, it was awful. And, uh, you know, finally in, with the lady with the cupcake that I told you about who had a stroke, when she went back to the assisted living is the day that I went back and there was still no vaccines yet. And, um, you know, so I wore a lab coat over my clothes. I had Clorox bleach uh, wipes to wipe up the bottom of my shoes uh, when I came out of the facility, before I got in my car, I took off my coat outside the house. I took my clothes off as soon as I got in the house and threw them in the washing machine. I came upstairs and took an antibacterial soap shower. I mean, that's how f- afraid I was mm. in the beginning when I first went back in because there was just no protection. Mm-hmm. It was just so unsafe. And I had N95 mask, I had, you know, gloves, I had a lab coat on, I was doing everything I could to protect myself, but there was just no way to be sure that somebody in there didn't have it and the facilities weren't being forthcoming. So you mm. never knew what you were going to walk into. That, that's just crazy. Yeah, that is absolutely insane. Yeah. Wow. It was hard times. Yeah. I have a question for you. Yeah. And that is, if you were to say you had a secret ingredient for your sort of wellness pie, your values sticking to them. Uh, What would that be? I would say it is that I listen to my heart and my gut. Mm. And um, as long as the two of them are not 
going off and they're in synchronicity, then I know that I'm on the right track. So that that's my internal meter for knowing that 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 I'm that I'm doing the right thing and that that my values are aligned. If either one of those goes off or I feel uncomfortable, then I know that I'm out of alignment somehow and I have to stop, step aside and see where I've gone off. You know, what what am I doing that's not in alignment with my values? Because one of the two will go off. Can can you give a, an example of that? I'm, I'm sure you have a lot. I, I had a, a client who was, uh, had dementia and had a family that, I still have this client actually, the, the family was basically back in, they, they'd been estranged for a long time and there were a number of children involved and they basically came back trying to go after his estate. It was a conservatorship involved. Mm-hmm. And um, th- there were all kinds of lawyers. And I mean, it was very chaotic. And he and I had a very good relationship. But at some point, I felt that the family was so abusive, but I didn't see the family. I was just getting this feeling from him. And I had to make a decision about whether or not to report this to Adult Protective Services. So it was one of those things where I didn't really see it happen. I've got a a patient with dementia who's telling me, and he's got a history with this family, and the information I'm getting isn't quite straight, and and I have to make a decision about making a report, and bells and whistles are going off, so I'm, I'm a little bit out of alignment. I had to go sit aside, and I actually that's when I, I called the psychologist who runs our practice and I ran through everything with her mm-hmm. and we decided to go on the safe side and call protective services because we had nothing to lose mm-hmm. and at least make the report and let them decide. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's kind of one of those things where, you know, like I, I didn't want to do the wrong thing and get sued. Mm. You know, I was afraid of getting sued. And so I was trying to protect myself because this family was so litigious Mm. and yet I wanted to protect my patient and I was feeling pulled between the two and I was trying to do the the, trying to do the right thing but I couldn't I I I couldn't decide on my own you know and I could feel the pull a great example it's it's funny how your values guide you to assist others and I know that you said that you use your you know these things to help others, but it, it, it's just, I guess values are usually an internal thing, right? Values are what help us help guide our lives, right? They're not necessarily something that give us the intuition to make choices on behalf of others. Does that make sense? I feel like yes. I'm not explaining myself. Yeah. No, yeah, it does make sense. But I think as social workers, we're often in a position where our actions influence influence the lives of other people. Absolutely. Yes. And so, I mean, almost all the time we're dealing with clients. And so our actions influence what happens to our clients. And we're often dealing with people who are underprivileged or don't have a voice and we become that voice or right. we empower them to have a voice. Mm-hmm. And so if our, if, if our values are out of alignment, then we're not going to be, a, we're going to do a disservice to our client. Oh, that's a very good point. Yeah. So it's, it's even more important that our values are in alignment 
and that we get them in alignment before we act so that we make sure that we're acting in the best interest or to the to the best doing the best service for our client 100% i think what you said is you took aside your personal concerns about being sued, sued, right? And you looked beyond myself and being like, okay, so what's really going on and how is this really impacting the client, right? And you, once you were able to see it from that perspective, you're like, oh yeah, no, we're gonna have to report this. Right. Learning, yeah. Right, exactly. Sharon, I am just so grateful that you agreed to come on our show. You know, we're with Samaya and me as um, co-hosts, we're sort of getting our format down and our mm-hmm. whole the way- Ooh. Huh? Yeah. Groove. 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 You know. And so thanks for being a guinea pig. Because right. really, this is just our second podcast, uh, second podcast together. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you want to say that we you you feel like we need to know? No. Hey, I really appreciate you having me on the show. And I appreciate you uh, providing this kind of a forum, you know, for people to hear. I think it's important work that you're doing. It's fun work, too right? Yeah. And oh my gosh, totally work. enjoy it. Yeah. yeah. Super fun. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's always interesting to me because, you know, the reason that this podcast even came about was I had never really considered what my values are. And to hear you say, you know, you've had, you've been in sort of in touch with what your values were, are from a very young age. It just uh, is, is a, is a really good thing to hear that some people, <laughs> some people are able to do that. Not my children, if anybody's listened to that particular podcast. <laughs> They're still young. Give them some time. Okay. I know. But, you know, Mason's 10 years old. That's on the, we'll, we'll have to see. The 15 year olds had it down. At any rate, Sharon, thank you so, so much. As always, being an interviewer, and you and I had talked about allowing ourselves to be more vulnerable and to really put ourselves in the position of, the interview E, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it just allows for me to, to learn so much. And I, what I'm taking away is that idea of really caring about other, I, it's hard to say. It's like, it's, yes, of course it's caring about other people, but it's also, I don't know. Maybe it's just a reminder of how important it is to be loving and compassionate towards everyone. It is a very good reminder. Of, mm-hmm. Regardless of who they are, where they come from you know, and the importance of advocating and, you know, fighting for justice for those that can't fight for themselves. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it was eye opening to me, the whole, that whole description of the nursing home and it was like a prison. It was wow, it just was. really awful. It was inhumane. And that's what prison is. It's inhumane. Yeah. No justification for not meeting hum- people's basic needs. And right. Rights. Right. And that's all I heard was that. And my thought was, if she had been in charge, if this had been the AIDS hospice of 1988, 1990, it would have been so different. Right. Right. Because the compassion would have been there. The staff mm-hmm. would have cared. I mean, I'm not saying that they don't, but you know, it's a whole different ball game. Well, I think we were driven by fear. Like in the eighties, people are driven by fear with AIDS, right? Mm-hmm. If fear doesn't allow us to have compassion and empathy you know, it, it blocks all, yeah, it blocks all that. And it's just, it's fear, you know, mm-hmm. it's then leads to loneliness and isolation and punishment. And, you know, as a result, and which is funny because other- those are all the things that we fear Yeah, and we create it. We manifest that into the universe. Absolutely. Yep. Good lesson there. Yep. All right, Samaya. Well, 
thank you again. I'm looking forward to our next interview and I appreciate your being here with me today. Me too. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And for our listeners, if they want to make sure they like us on Facebook and Instagram, give us some comments, questions. We love questions. Love them. Love them. Yep. And we'll see everybody next week. Bye-bye. Bye.